Welcome to New Books and Caribbean Studies, a podcast channel of New Books Network. I'm Sharika Crawford, your host. Today I'm with Dr. Catherine Zion. She's an associate professor in the Department of English at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. We're here to discuss her book, Sovereign Acts, Performing Race, Space, and Belonging in Panama and the Canal Zone, which was published by Rutgers University Press in 2017. Welcome to New Books and Caribbean Studies, Katie. Uh, thank you so much, Sharika. You are my first interviewee located outside the United States, so it's a real thrill to have you on the channel, and I'm I'm so happy that uh, we are working through, um, which is kind of a nice kind of trans, you know, border uh, contact right mm-hmm. now, kind of similar to your to your book. Hmm. Interesting. Let us begin with you sharing a bit, if you will, about your intellectual and professional background. Sure. Um, So I am a scholar of theater and performance studies, um, and I've long been interested in the intersections of theater and performance with um, political theory and law um, and uh, and the region of the Americas, Um, questions of the hemispheric, of the transnational um, and you know, of also of the national. Um, so I, um, uh, it's interesting that you mentioned that, um, I'm in Canada and that has everything to do with my book, actually, even if it may not be that apparent. Um, I, uh, was in graduate school, um, thinking about my dissertation and I happened to be in Panama and traveled to the canal zone on the Northern side of the isthmus, um, near Cologne, uh, in Cologne, um, and um, I was very taken with initially just the landscape of the canal zone and the space of it. And as you probably saw from my book, space is very important to my analysis. Um, thinking about uh, a close reading of space and an embodied um, encounter with space and how that informs belonging and citizenship. So I was in the canal zone and I started seeing these theaters that were clearly theaters. And I was wondering about them. And I decided to start researching, um, first talking to other scholars um, like Ames McGinnis, um, and then uh, doing archival work at the National Archives too in College Park, Maryland, where I looked at the Panama Canal uh, records record group. Um, and uh, I started to um, become very interested both in the, the culture of the Zonians, this very unique group of people, um, but also um, just in the larger questions of how performance um, entered into life in the canal zone. So initially my dissertation didn't actually focus very much on the question of sovereignty, but was much more about um, performance space and questions of race, race and nationalism um, in, in Panama and the canal zone. And then uh, when I moved to Quebec, um, I started to become very interested in questions of sovereignty just because here in Quebec, it's a very um, active debate about whether Quebec should be a sovereign nation um, because it's francophone and uh, some of the descendants come from France uh, from a long time ago, as opposed to the rest of Canada, which is seen as Anglophone, even though neither of those things are perfectly true. There are Anglophones in Quebec and there's also allophones. Um, But in any case, the question of sovereignty here is very present. And I started to think about about Panama in light of sovereignty, which was sort of staring me in the face the whole time. I don't know if you've experienced that feeling of um, suddenly 
alighting upon a question that was there the whole time, but you kind of hadn't really seen it for what it was. Um, And I started to think about not a causal relationship between performance and sovereignty, but a relationship in which when sovereignty is contested, and it often is, um, you can, you know, manifest it in different ways um, in performance, for example, in representations. Um, and and re- performances serve as a way of negotiating sovereignty debates um, when the law is not decided on sovereignty, and even when it is. Um, another example is uh, indigenous quest for sovereignty in Turtle Island, uh, which is what many indigenous peoples call Canada. Um, and qu- things like the territorial acknowledgments that often occur before um, any uh, gathering um, in 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 Canada, um, which try to acknowledge that the land actually is, you know, the sovereign land of, you know, certain groups like here, it would be the, um, the Anishinaabe and, um, the, uh, um, the, um, Mohawk, right. So people often say this land belongs to peoples who, you know, um, have long, uh, you know, settled it and, and, and traded on it. And, um, you know, uh, settler colonialism is is um has shaped Canada today something like that so basically the idea that I started to think about was the coexistence of multiple kinds of sovereignty in one space and that led me to think about the canal zone as a kind of case that could open up a lot of questions around how sovereignty is performed one of the things that is striking in your opening introduction is that you you do lay out um not necessarily this this kind of background trajectory, which was fascinating, um, this hemispheric per, um, perspective and how you came to the questions over sovereignty in, in Panama and the Canal Zone. But you were able to link your questions about sovereignty with um, performance and, and, and also subjectivity. And I was hoping that we might go through some of those concepts, perhaps for our, our listeners who um, haven't had an opportunity to, to read your work, how you were thinking about how sovereignty played out, for example, in um, Panama and more particularly the Canal Zone. And then what do you mean by um, performativity mm-hmm. or subjectivity? So perhaps we can kind of go with sovereignty and then maybe pick up one or, or the other concepts. Sure. Um, Thanks. So it's very interesting. I mean, I was, so, you know, in in Panama, people have long been interested in Sobedania and actually they have a beer called Sobedana and Sobedania is on license plates or has been on license plates. And it's often been a very active theme in people's discussions, daily discussions, um, probably mostly because of the dictatorship of Omar Torrijos. And that, that was sort of his major um, kind of, uh, you know, stake, uh, his major kind of, um, theme of his, of his, um, administration was, was, uh, getting the canal zones to be sovereign for Panama. Um, so sovereignty is sort of in the air. And I started to think a little bit about the Panama Canal Treaty and, and some of the clauses in the treaty, which were so fascinating because, um, as I describe in my book, it's, you know, treaties are normally performative utterances. They're language that enacts. So if you say, um, you know, in a treaty, uh, this land shall belong to X people, then, um, you know, it you know, can be decreed in, into law. And just recently, in fact, the New York, the U.S. Supreme Court um, uh, um, decided on a question of uh, an indigenous treaty law um, in Oklahoma, I believe, and 
uh, you know, said like it's in the treaty, so it must we must follow the treaty. Um, so it it has very important implications for law, and a treaty is often first um, created orally and then is 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 written down. Um, so. Um, so I thought to myself, well, this is very interesting because treaties, um, even though they seem to be quite solid texts um, that decree certain things about land rights and about legal rights. In fact, um, if you look at the way that treaties have been created, and the Panama Canal Treaty is no exception, they've been created quickly, um, you know, under duress, um, without necessarily the consent of the coerced, right, or the consent of those who fall under the treaty. And so the Panama Canal Treaty contains a really fascinating article that basically uses the subjunctive um, mood. It's it's a mood uh, that's basically as if it were, right? So the treaty, the Panama Canal Treaty that was created um, when, when Panama's uh, independence was um, uh, enshrined, um, you know, legally um, kind of with the help of the United States, um, Panama's independence from Colombia, um, the treaty that was created was um, very vague about the actual sovereignty of the canal zone. Um, so it basically said, you know, Panama has titular sovereignty, like the title of sovereignty, but um, the, you know, the United States shall behave as if it were sovereign in the canal zone. Uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that was sort of the language. And the treaty was not written in Spanish initially because it was created by um, a Frenchman who had uh, served with Ferdinand de Lesseps's um, uh, Panama Canal uh, gambit and um, the U.S., uh, you know, um, uh, U.S. Uh, administrators. So um, basically when Panamanians got wind of what the treaty said, they um, seized upon the question of this, the, the substantial doubt that, that um, was contained in the treaty. And in Spanish, I mean, unlike English, this subjuntivo um, tense is used quite often, as you know, um, it's, it's kind of used for a variety of different things. And in English, it's the subjunctive is not really the same kind of um, corollary yet. Um, they seized upon the subjunctive nature of the of this article and really questioned who was sovereign in the canal zone. Um, and the canal zone, you know, is large, right? It's 553 square miles, roughly. Um, if we think about all the fighting that's gone on over Guantanamo, that is tiny compared to what the canal zone and all the things that were happening in the canal zone, including some very similar activities like, um, you know, uh, basically detaining people um, who were uh, perceived as um, unworthy, um, like people first who had leprosy and also, um, you know, refugees uh, from various places. Um, and, and also um, during World War II, detaining uh, enemy combatants, um, Japanese and German descended peoples in the Americas were detained in the canal zone. Um, so, in any case, what I'm trying to say is that the the that clause over sovereignty was very crucial, and it was crucially left vague. And and nothing is ever really an accident in these things. I mean, one could say, oh, it was a you know an oversight to leave it so vague, but it was definitely purposefully left vague. It was in keeping with the United States um, government's uh, imperialist uh, kind of drive at the time to both kind of rule in certain places and not be sovereign in those places because sovereignty in those places would would mean that you'd have 
colonial populations to govern. You'd have a constitution to potentially apply to those lands. So it was a very intentional slippage. But what it does is it actually opens up a variety of ways in which the treaty can be interpreted as a performance text. So what I mean by that is, you know, if it's no longer performative in the terms of J.L. Austin, who's a scholar who um, who theorized performativity as language that enacts in how to do things with words, um, his famous treatise on the topic, um, if it's no longer a performative text, then it becomes a subjunctive text, um, a text that is as if or what if, um, as if it were. And performance, uh, basically, the you know, thrives on uses of the subjunctive. The subjunctive is, or subjunctivity, is crucial to performance. So for example, you know, an actor playing King Lear is both a person and King Lear is both, you know, is playing as if he were um, a king. And so I tried to extrapolate from this condition of subjunctivity to think about how performance performances of sovereignties, um, multiple sovereignties really suffused the canal zone. And I would argue, you know, you can apply this theorization to other places where sovereignty is contested and, and look at the micro ways in which people frame and and negotiate um, the contested sovereignty for themselves, which have ramifications for citizenship, legal protections, every kind of thing you can imagine flows from that. So not only borderland spaces, but whole nations, right, that are contested, um, places like the Balkans that have been severely contested, um, and, you know, places where indigenous sovereignty claims are clashing with settler sovereignty claims and space is determined in multiple ways. It may be for one group that a space is, you know, contains spiritual meaning. And for another group, it contains, um, you know, opportunities for settlement and material extraction. So um, sovereignty intersects with all kinds of realms, um, you know, religious realms, uh, emotional realms, uh, legal health, um, material, economic realms, and of course, political realms. And um, so, so I think thinking about the performance nature of sovereignty is quite crucial to understanding how it works. Um, because sovereignty is a very abstract legal concept, it's been, you know, theorized, um, you know, by Wendy Brown, among others, as, you know, basically, you know, kind of a, a total, a totalizing concept that you can't have partial sovereignty. It's either one or the other. You can't share sovereignty, for example. Um and when you combine this with imperialism, we see that a lot of treaties, you know, laid out terms that were interesting because they both treated um, the peoples whom they were treating with as sovereign nations at times and as dependent wards at other times. And this was a, a kind of paradox in international law um, of the 19th century, for example, um, and, and earlier too, but particularly then when some people were saying, well, this group that you've made a treaty with is not worthy of making a treaty with because they're not a nation, right? Um, and then other other theorists would say, well, you know, they can be a nation for purposes of making this treaty. But the point being that the treaty itself um, kind of brings into being those unequal relationships um, political relationships, and then also the ways in which law can be utilized so strategically by an imperial power, um, you know, in order to both legitimize itself, right, and to um, 
to, to, to get what it wants. So those are some of the um, kind of aspects of the argument that I'm making. I found it very, well, you know, thank you. I found it very helpful the way you um, explain this kind of subjectivity and, and this, this terminology that you will use throughout the rest of your book in making your arguments, um, the functioning of a state as if um, they were sovereign and then laying out the contested nature of it. And you, you start right away in your, in your first chapter by um, introducing readers to to a fairly pivotal figure when we think about the the early years of um, the creation of the the, the canal, the, the origins of, of the the American presence in the canal zone, and that is President Theodore Roosevelt. And I thought that this might be a, an interesting point to um, have you delve in a little bit further to these arguments regarding um, sovereignty, um, performativity, subjectivity with his 1906 uh, tour to Panama and the performative nature of how he is um, showcasing U.S.'s sovereignty over the canal or in the canal zone. Yes, thank you. I mean, I think that we can actually learn a lot about United States kind of presidential leadership styles from TR, from Theodore Roosevelt. I mean, in so many ways, he um, and now he's he's seen as 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 what he was, which is and what he is, which is a very controversial figure who, you know, was um, very pro imperialist, pro expansionist, and very militaristic, and uh, you know had lots of racial hierarchies and, you know, and, and wasn't afraid to, uh, deploy them. Um, and, um, you know, uh, so I think that we can, we can learn quite a lot. He also, he as a figure is fascinating because, um, he was very, you know, he, he moved fast and broke things right in the language of Silicon Valley. He kind of strode ahead and didn't care about custom or, you know, uh, decency. And um, I would compare him to McKinley, right? Um, and I do so in my book briefly, but McKinley sort of, you know, um, woke up and inherited kind of a, an empire for the United States. I mean, that is a high, you know, high oversimplification, but McKinley kind of stepped into U.S. empire making um, in the Philippines, for example, with a sort of, I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't, you know, dead set on it, right? He was kind of like, okay, well, what's that, right? What's, where are the Philippines? Um, TR, um, by contrast, was very obsessed with, you know, manliness, uh, Western um, migration, manifest destiny, and expansion and, and power for the United States. And he wrote a book, right, about, um, about the United States basically conquering indigenous lands in what is now the United States. And, kind of framed um, the conquest in this way and wanted to then expand further. And so he, you know, he had his famous boast, I took Panama, right? I took the canal zone. And this actually inspired a political play in Colombia, which you may be aware of, um, that really kind of grapples with that, um, that sentiment of the big stick, the, the kind of um, swaggering uh, sort of disregard for conventionalities, sort of persona that just stomps all over the world, right? And does so with impunity. And so TR, um, when he um, when he wanted to sell the U.S. public on the canal, because I should um, note that when Theodore Roosevelt basically engineered um, Panama's independence from Colombia, this was met with a huge outcry. People were extremely critical of it and were very 
upset and thought that this was going to be a failed enterprise. Um, they were looking at, you know, the U.S.-Philippine war that was happening um, and all of the destruction of life and just, you know, basically the crisis that was going on. And they were saying, well, we don't want any more trouble. And this looks like it's going to be a lot of trouble. And indeed, the first years were plagued by sickness. So many people died. You know, it was, it seemed like it was going to be a disaster. Um, so TR decided to go to Panama. And this was the first um, trip outside of the continental United States for a president while in office. But of course, you know, was it really outside of the United States? He did go into Panama, but he he was constantly during his trip to Panama, which has been talked about by other scholars. Um, what I focus on in that case study is how he used his body to kind of you know, dance along the border between Panama and the canal zone. So he would step, you know, outside of the canal zone back into the canal zone and say, who cares, you know, who really cares about this border anyway? And, you know, obviously Panamanians cared a lot, but he, <laughs> um, he uh, sort of made light of it. And in making light of it, he showed that he didn't really think that the sovereignty question was very interesting. He thought that, oh, we're coming in and you should, you know, you should basically embrace um, what we're doing here because we're going to improve things for, for everyone in Panama. Now that you've helped you gain your independence, we're going to build infrastructure, roads, utilities, and everything and, and clean up this area and et cetera, et cetera. Um, he was also very adamant that the United States was not, um, you know, annexing the canal zone. He didn't want, you know, more land. Um, he said that this wasn't sovereignty, that the United States did not have sovereignty in the canal zone. It had the equivalent of sovereignty. And obviously you would say, what is that? Um, and for him, it was basically, you know, the ability to create these new economies of scale um, and new infrastructures for trade, for global trade, like the canal, and improve connectedness in the world and, you know, make everyone better off, um, rather than to claim land and, you know, institute a colonial government and have colonial subjects and have a bureaucratic, um, uh, you know, organization set out. So he was trying to dif differentiate uh, U.S. new empire, as they call it in the in the chapter, from the kind of old world excesses that he had observed, both with Spanish the Spanish Empire, the conquest, and then also the British Empire um, as well. Uh, and so, I think that he utilized his body on the tour to kind of effectively do that. And after he his after he came back from his tour to Panama, he um, included a, he had a lot of press you know coverage, and there were journalists embedded with him, and all the PR really worked. So the press relations, you know, people were really dazzled by what he was showing to them and how great they thought this would be, and it really turned things around and made the public come on board with the project. So it was quite pivotal. In addition to um, TR's successful 1906 tour into the Canal Zone, one of the topics that you bring up, and it's something that I don't think um, other scholars who, who write on this moment um, in U.S.-Panamanian um, relations focus on, is the aesthetics and the construction of the, the, the you know, the aesthetical value of the canal zone. There's been a lot of attention to, you know, the actual physical building of the canal, the, the big ditch and um, public sanitation projects to rid yellow fever. But you draw in this kind of combination of the 
um, sovereignty as if model for the U.S. with also the, the, the aesthetical kind of construction that's happening. And I was hoping you might elaborate a little bit on that point. Sure. I mean, briefly, um, yeah, the U.S. was anxious about looking like an imperial power and, you know, in imperialism has a kind of aesthetics, right? We often think of the imperial, you know, explorer wearing his his khakis, um, you know, and his pith helmet. And we think of majestic structures that are very Western looking and um, Greco-Roman kind of architecture and things like this to, to say, you know, and, and of course, in the case of the Spanish empire, there's the plaza with the cathedral or the church and, you know, the there's a certain aesthetics of empire, right? And this actually doesn't receive as much covers, coverage as it should. But I think in the canal zone, the if you go there, you'll you'll see that it looks like, rather like an imperial enclave. And a lot of Panamanians have often said that. I mean, it's this pristine place with this boulevard of palm trees leading up to this sweeping, huge mansion, which is the headquarters of the canal um, authority. And it looks imperial. Um, and so what I was doing in that chapter was kind of working with some of the the architectural um, uh, history and thinking about how aesthetics contribute to uh, questions of empire and sovereignty. So what I ended up thinking very much about was the idea of a kind of aesthetics of um, necessity, right? So the idea of, okay, well, we're building this thing and we don't want it to be beautiful or expensive or, or spectacular. We want it to be just simply necessary, just to have the basic essentials. Um, that was often the argument that was used to build all of this incredible infrastructure in in the canal zone. Um like it's necessary for the functioning of the canal zone. And of course it, it wasn't. I mean, <laughs> a lot of it was actually rather excessive, but um, you know, it, it it was seen as quote necessary. Um so there's there's that. I also was interested in in um an interesting fine arts commission assessment of the actual canals locks um because the canals locks have been portrayed in a lot of images and and lithographs and and sketches and things and they're very imposing and beautiful but the commissions Kate said, well, you know, the reason that they're beautiful is actually their lack of intention to be beautiful. And if we did decorate them, we would make them, in fact, less beautiful. So the idea of this beauty that comes out of efficacy or efficiency and the bare essentials leading to a kind of austere beauty, um, that was something I, I thought was very interesting. Um so the, the locks sort of symbolized um, the kind of empire but not empire goal of the United States in Panama. Mm -hmm. I found that section to work really well with um, a recent um, book by Maritza Lasso, A Race, you know, the untold uh, story of the Panama Canal, which for our listeners, if they wanted to hear her interview on New Books Network and Caribbean Studies with um, my co-host Alejandra Bronfman, um, they can find it on the website. But she talks about how um, there was such a kind of depiction, um, at least in the, the, the kind of American um, media of Panama and the area that will be the canal zone as kind of this jungle, this kind of rainforest. And there wasn't, you know, people there. And, and she talks about the depopulation of urban spaces um, where Panamanians had lived for for many years and had a very vibrant commerce, and I, in you know, when putting it up against that chapter, um, you really do see the erasure. You kind of have the consequences of the erasure put in your face very effectively with this 
um, acting as if sovereign right, players. Right, right, right. Indeed, her book hadn't come out when I wrote my book, but um, yes, I'm, I'm a huge fan of her work. And um, yes, they had to depopulate like 60,000 people from from that place. And it was not an unpeopled strip of land, right? So yes, definitely. Your, your focus on the aesthetics um, that you start in chapter one really lays the groundwork um, for chapter two, where you, you kind of move on to the aesthetics of the canal zone housing, to being able to look at kind of the, the social, recreational, leisure lives um, of the people who worked in the, the canal zone, both the foreign um, British West Indians and those who were coming from um, the United States. And I was um, hoping you might spend some time talking about um, how sovereignty or this um, kind of subjunctive nature of sovereignty is playing out um, in, in, in how managing, you know, the, the social aspects of their employees' um, day-to-day lives. Right. Well, TR had um, really wanted to institute what he called a moral architecture. And that meant both literal architecture that was morally kind of, um, you know, beautiful and, and, and clean, but also uh, an architecture of moral entertainments and, and reasonable amusements. Those were some of the terms that were used because you were importing, you know, tons and tons of laborers at times up to 50,000 people were living there. Um, you know, a, a subset of them, uh, you know, up to roughly something like 60% of them would be West Indian, and then the rest would be white uh, U.S. citizens um, or a mixture of Europeans. Um, although quickly, you know, it, it's often binarized as sort of white U.S. citizens versus black West Indians. And it, it's not that simple, but, you know, there were also South Asians and East Asians and Europeans and, and many other groups. Um, but, you know, for the most part, you have those two groups being highly represented in, in the workforce. Um, this, this argument about moral architecture, so it feeds into a kind of complicated dis- discussion of sovereignty because um, here it's not so much a theorization of sovereignty as it is the actual workings out of sovereignty on the ground. And what I mean by that is that when the workers arrived in the canal zone, there were very few things for them to do. And meanwhile, Panamanian merchants had set up a ton of uh, entertainments right across the border for them to make money. And so they were going across the border constantly and going to saloons, cabarets, you know, all kinds of things. Um, because in their off hours, they were pursuing leisure. Um, and of course, leisure, you know, becomes a very salient category for identity formation with the rise of organized labor, right? That's happening, you know, shortly before this time, I would say. But in the early 20th century, leisure time began to be very important for the way that people were organizing their identities, Um And so especially here, you had the white U.S. citizens who could just traverse the border almost, you know, with impunity. And then the black West Indians who were very much um, kind of persecuted by Panamanians and spied upon by the Canal Zone police and and basically policed. And so had to be much more careful and actually preferred doing things in the Canal Zone because Panama was a dangerous place for them for for, in many ways. Um, So... What I discuss in this chapter is basically a very fine-grained historical um, discussion of, based on archival documents um, at the National Archives, of the ways in which different people were pursuing leisure activities, organized leisure activities in the canal zone, and how this kind of redounds upon um, questions of sovereignty and citizenship and belonging. Um, U.S. citizens in the canal zone 
were were still U.S. citizens, but they couldn't vote locally in the Canal Zone. They didn't have any political representation, and they often used their clubs as ways to have a kind of political hierarchy. So they would be elected to positions in their in their various clubs, like the Masons and the Odd Fellows and um, the Secret Order of Red Men, and all of these things. Um, and that was the way that they formed co- co- coherent identities and kind of, you know, existed together in, in relationships. West Indians, on the other hand, um, were not really given spaces for leisure and eventually had to fight for them. And And the U.S. government made the case that they were not citizens and so they should not deserve these spaces. But eventually they did gain them by saying we are, you know, we, we are forced to go outside of the canal zone and... Um, you know, not only is it dangerous, but it's di- it's making us dissolute and things like this. So eventually, they did gain those those sites, um, although they were uh, far inferior to their population. Um, in any case, the use of those of sites of entertainment like clubhouses, um, which featured both social clubs and then traveling entertainments that were contracted by the U.S. government, that's another interesting aspect of the chapter, um, kind of helped people to determine how they fit into the canal zone. And for U.S. citizens, the U.S. government really wanted them to feel part of the United States. So they would send these states entertainers to kind of, you know, sing them the latest songs and do blackface entertainments and things like that. Um, But then the U.S. citizens in the canal zone started to feel that they were a different group. They were calling themselves Zonians, and they were both hyper-patriotic and very much divorced from the United States um, and and often felt weird going going there because they didn't they weren't really from there. Um, And then the it's also interesting that the West Indian clubs, which were called silver clubs because West Indians were paid a lot less and they were paid with the silver roll and, and whites were paid with the gold roll that the silver club started receiving entertainers as well. Um, and, and got tapped into that network too. And were able to develop this other identity where they started to really empathize with black, um, Americans, like African Americans in the U S they started to get, you know, really interested in U S civil rights movements later on. Um, and they developed, organizations and networks um, uh, that were kind of, you know, trying to mirror some of the activities that were going on among African American civil rights leaders in the United States. And so as you, what you see actually is this longstanding connection to the United States among West Indian, Black West Indian um, canal workers um, that still exists to a certain extent today. Um, so anyway, uh, basically, uh, so, so those are some ways in which citizenship and, you know, ideas of citizenship were formed through social, social activities and entertainments. Another facet of that is that Panamanians, um, so the government, the political leaders were outraged at the fact that there were all these workers crossing boundaries daily to go to these taverns, saloons, and cabarets. But of course, Panamanian merchants were very happy about this because it was enriching them economically. It was a bustling enterprise. And also West Indians often lived outside of the canal zone because their housing was um, expensive and um, insufficient. And white Americans did not have to pay for housing. West Indians actually had to pay rent and were given really subpar conditions to live in. So a lot of them chose to live in Panama. And they started having extended families in Panama. They started becoming effectively Panamanian, even though they didn't have Panamanian citizenship. Um, But their kids were you know, when they were born in Panama, well, 
I guess they kind of did, right? And we see in in the 40s that their citizenship status was called into question because so many of them were starting to live and and have children in Panama. Um, So they started to develop cross-border networks. And then in 1933, there was um, a kind of ruling that uh, that no no one except for canal employees could frequent um, canal zone establishments. And this actually, it's so f- fascinating because in a sense, that was something that Panama had wanted, but it really frustrated so many people because they were coming into the canal zone to enjoy the social clubs and the activities, the films and the um, the dances and, and the, the entertainers, and they couldn't do that anymore. And they couldn't go to the commissaries, for example. Um, so it you know it, it it had an effect of both dampening some of the economic activity and also um you know trying to uh mollify nationalists on both sides i found it really fascinating um the way that you were able to showcase the nuanced identity formation of these two groups the two primary groups that you um focus on in the chapter and which much of the scholarship on on the canal zone focuses on primarily that of the large um uh, kind of labor force coming primarily from um the the, the caribbean uh the british uh, West Indies, and to some smaller degree, the the leftovers from the French Caribbean, and obviously this American population of Brazilians, and and I thought that with the um, the arrival of these kind of um, government sponsored uh, entertainment troops and and the Zonian responses to them, and the, sometimes the dissatisfaction with the quality and, and kind of the presentation, but also the the tensions that um, slightly erupted as well um, when you had African-American often um, secretaries to these clubs and then the local labor population. Um, there's been so much scholarship clearly that talks about the transnational solidarity and you, you just spoke of that, but there also were fissures at times um, that erupted. And, and I didn't know if you wanted to kind of speak to the to the nuances that were kind of forming in this early part. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. And thanks for pointing it out. I mean, the um, so initially the U.S. did have some African-American canal workers, but things got too difficult because they were trying to maintain segregation, racial segregation on the basis of nationality, right? So they basically started to say, well, you know, we have a large population of black workers from, from the West Indies. Um, we have a large pop- population of white workers from the U.S. And if we have African-American workers, this really complicates, you know, trying to give them the same wages as the black um, workers from the West Indies. It's, it makes it so obviously racial. So we're going to say it's national and just not have African-American workers. So what you end up having then is this large population of British West Indian workers and French West Indian workers with um, some clubhouse officials who, yes, are African-American and um, are not from the community. And basically, I don't know much about the first generation of um, of silver clubhouse administrators. It, there, There's a lot of correspondence of them, but there, there isn't much description of them. And I'm not sure if they're African-American or if they're West Indian. I think they are African-American. Maybe that was... Um, you know, some of the, um, uh, the, the protocol for hiring them was that they had to be African-American. They had to be U.S. citizens for the U.S. government to employ them in the clubhouses. Um, I'm not sure, but they, and 
they the first generation kind of administered the clubhouses in a very important way and really advocated for for black workers in the canal zone and and were very important um, but were also very policing of the population so they would have dances where they would you know weed out what they called the you know the kind of um, unsavory element and they would police the way people were dancing in a way that they didn't do in the white clubhouses in the gold rule clubhouses and then you start to have some letters to the editor of this certain newspaper that are complaining about the the kind of ways of the African-American clubhouse officials, you know, in policing West Indians and saying, well, we want our own people to be in these positions. We want to get these salaries like, you know, and eventually they, they do. I mean, West Indians start to occupy much, many more administrative positions in the canal zone and teacher positions and things like that. Um, but they, you know, for a while, they're not being hired for those positions because the pay is too great. And, you know, they're considered more like gold rule positions um, in terms of the pay, the pay grade. So um, West Indians, I mean, you know, it's interesting because as as many people have written, um, the kinds of West Indians who came to Panama to work on the canal zone were not the poorest laborers. They were usually middle class, um, you know, some of them were fairly educated or even very educated and they were artisans um, and craftspeople. So they came expecting a certain level of income and they did get, you know, they, they, they received pay that was much better than they would have got in, in their um, home homes countries. And they sent a lot of it back. So you have this whole influx of Panama money, right? But they did, they were, they, they found themselves pretty aghast at the second class status that they were, you know, given they were afforded when they got to the canal zone and the Jim Crow racism that and segregation that they encountered, they were really quite surprised at, you know, having to go to colored only fountains and things like this. So, and, and segregated spaces and really being treated, you know, being called boy and things like that. Um, so they, uh, they started to respond to that treatment um, and eventually attain positions of leadership in the, in the canal zone. Mm. It seems to me that your discussion of the growth of these clubhouses, um, not just for the Zonians, but particularly for um, the Caribbean laborers um, in the area, really led to these, I don't, this kind of more, um, you know, stronger contestations over citizenship that play out in the 1940s into the 1940s. 50s, where you um, have this beautiful chapter on George Westerman in, in ways that I have not um, encountered discussions of him. Um, he's a pretty pivotal figure when we think about um, the Caribbean population in the Canal Zone. And I was hoping that you could introduce who George Westerman was and how he served um, in many ways to be a cultural diplomat at a time in which the question of citizenship, are they British subjects? Um, are they um, going to be able to be Panamanians? Um, how are they going to be configured if they're working in the canal zone? And how he um, illustrates those those um, kind of contested um, struggles over over their place in the, in, in the country. Yes. So thank you so much. Um, so Westerman, George Washington Westerman is a pivotal figure and he's a fascinating person who everyone I think needs to know about. He's a West Indian Panamanian um, scholar, sociologist, journalist, editor. Um, you know, he was the editor of the Panama Tribune, which was a, a very important West Indian newspaper for many decades. Um, he was a politician, he was a diplomat, and he was a concert impresario. Um, and I found, I discovered his, or I, I came upon his papers in 
the Schomburg um, Center um, uh, in, in, in New York. And uh, he has an extensive archival collection that was meticulously organized, which would be very, um, you know, I would, I would assume that it would, that he would organize things really meticulously because he really was so meticulous and so comprehensive. I mean, everything that he did, um, he's written just tons of work on Panama and the canal zone and every facet of it. And, um, so I feel like more people need to know of him, but his concert impresario activities are, were relatively undiscussed. And I think they're quite important because as you state um, in the forties, so as, as West Indians, you know, were having a lot of kids in Panama and they were, you know, the questions of citizenship were, were coming to the fore and Panamanians were quite clear that they didn't want West Indians to be, you know, part of Panama, and a lot of them would use West Indians as a kind of foil for U.S. imperialism more generally. Um, at the same time, um, the West Indians were not able to get U.S. citizenship, uh, for even if they were born in the Canal Zone, whereas white U.S. citizens born in the Canal Zone were able to get U.S. citizenship, right? Um, so that's where you get the questions about John McCain, for example. Of course, he's a U.S. citizen, because if he were, you know, if he were West Indian born in the Canal Zone, he, he wouldn't have been. Um, so, and at the same time, their British, their, their, their coverage, you know, by British law was, um, and, uh, you know, was, was, uh, ebbing as they started to basically, um, you know, no longer, no longer really be connected to, um, the West Indies and not really want to go back. Right. So, um, when the canal construction ended, many people assumed, oh, well, the West Indian laborers will just return to the islands. And they were, they said, no, we want to stay here. So many, many of them stayed. Um, the population really swelled um, Panama's population. And uh, West women became an advocate and an ally for West Indians um, trying to fight for both racial justice and also citizenship rights um, in Panama. He felt like Panama, like the thing to do was to integrate into Panama. Like it wasn't worth it to really, you know, to, to continue to be a canal zone um, ent based entity, but to really straddle both the canal zone and Panama and to utilize this identity as a bargaining chip because he recognized that West Indians could be um, liaisons between uh, the the Anglophone um, United States government, you know, and the United States uh, Canal Zone government, right, and the Hispanophone Panamanian government because they were often bilingual um, at this time. Um, so they were inhabiting very multifaceted identities, and he seized upon cultural diplomacy as a way to actually promote West Indians inclusion into Panama. Um, he did this by sponsoring many uh, opera singers, basically, which is so interesting, black opera singers. And I found it fascinating because generally there isn't as clear cut a, a kind of list of black opera singers um, at this time. We're talking in the forties and fifties and sixties, you know, people know about Marian Anderson, but do they know about, you know, Camilla Williams, uh, you know, Hazel, well, Hazel Scott is an outlier, but Dorothy Maynard, Carol Bryce, Ella Bell Davis, um, you know, and, and people like William Warfield and Todd Duncan, uh, these names kind of come up every once in a while, but Westerman really sought out, black opera singers and classical musicians and brought them to Panama for concerts. And he formed an organization called Westerman Concerts uh, and um, he started to sponsor them. And this was 
um, a really interesting um, money losing endeavor for him. But he felt that by showcasing upstanding black um, performers, he could he could both shame the U.S. Um, government into recognizing the citizenship of these people as African-Americans and shame Panamanians into recognizing the citizenship of West Indians who were also upstanding. Um, and he also kind of forcibly um, desegregated um, the uh, U.S. ambassadors, residents, for example, by uh, in having a big party for some of these stars there, right? So he was when when you had a black opera singer come the us government would you know the ambassador would extend a kind of welcome and he would say well let's invite a bunch of west indians too and then you had a kind of desegregated space that had not been desegregated before um so he was making a, a connection between african americans and 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 black west indians um and trying to kind of um you know uh, say, well, if you're really going to be democracies, as you claim, then you need to um, kind of deal with this question of citizenship and integrate us because we are going to en- enhance and enrich your society through our cosmopolitanism. Mm-hmm. It actually was um, fascinating to, to kind of look at this process happening as early um, as the 40s because there had some scholarship in the U.S. I'm sure that you're aware of about um, jazz diplomacy, but it's discussed within the, the fabric of Cold War um, tensions, and you're showing it um, through a different process for a different um, result. You know, the the integration of this um, um, population, this Isthmian Black population in, in Panama and in, in trying to seek their place. Yet you do note um, that Westerman and, and all of his... Um, you know, his kind of forethought and, and really ambitious projects of trying to improve the conditions um, um, of, of, of Black people living in, in Panama of, of this uh, West Indian background, that he doesn't challenge um, the assumptions of colonialism. I mean, even kind of what it means to be an acceptable citizen, right, or, or their opera singers. <laughs> from the United States and, and, and no less, not even from the, the Caribbean, from the islands in which um, the, the parents and grandparents may have came from. And I was wondering, how, how, do, we, how do we conclude or come away with understanding um, kind of Westerman's positionality, if we will? Well, that's a great point. And Westerman, so he, he is a Cold War figure, um, and he was interested in uses of cultural diplomacy by the U.S. government um, during the Cold War, like, for example, sending Marian Anderson um, to, you know, the Soviet Union. Um, and so, and he also, of course, you know, contracted Marian Anderson to come to Panama and do something kind of similar in, in miniature. Um, he, it's funny because he kind of, he was wary of jazz, right? Of, he was wary of the, you know, the kind of um, dangers of jazz. So he thought about contracting jazz musicians at some point, but I think decided to focus on opera because it was more upstanding and it did connote this acceptable minority, right? Um, He was a big believer in um, liberalism, in universal humanism, in the idea that, I mean, he understood, of course, he understood racial differences, but you know, coming after World War II, he, he, he basically kind of understood that West Indians could be, 
important figures um, in, in, a, in a canal zone in a Panama that were enlightened and liberal because they understood what it meant to be different, to be, to be outsiders, and they brought lots of cultural complexity with them and could have these dialogues that were very difficult to have. Um, so I guess I, you know, I, I interpret his, um, his goals kind of generously and ungenerously. Um, he was really, he was fascinated by, yeah, by liberalism, by, by the rule of law and, and by the question of democracy. But he also, you know, in the end, um, a lot of people kind of fell out with him, right? Because he ended up endorsing a presidential candidate who had essentially, you know, uh, threatened to, you know, strip West Indians retroactively of their citizen of their Panamanian citizenship, um, people of West Indian, Indian descent, and you know, m- many West Indian Panamanians ended up embracing the dictatorship of Omar Torrijos and Westerman, who was an avowed kind of cold warrior on the U.S. side. Um, you know, in favor of you know capitalism um, and and very anti-communist. Actually, um, he you know, ran afoul of the Torrijos dictatorship and his newspaper was was essentially dismantled. And um, he ended up becoming an ambassador, right, um, to the West Indies, um, but he, an actual <laughs> ambassador, um, which is another fascinating component of his personality in his life. But um, I do think that his his understanding of, of acceptability and of kind of upstandingness was you know, it it was beholden to a different era, right? And when he started to, when he continued to work into the 70s and 80s, people felt that he was kind of out of tune of what was needed. What was needed was, you know, black power. What was needed was kind of um, Afrocentrism and Marxism and, and things like this and, 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 you know, a connection to the third world. And he wasn't interested in those things. He was interested in, in kind of a, a, res- a black respectability in a very kind of, um, a very kind of textbook way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I would say that, you know, your book, you know, has made such, you know, coverage of so many um, amazing counterpoints that it would be enough to say that your book stops just here, but you, you do a wonderful thing of having your final two chapters bring the readers all the way to the transfer um, of the canal zone to um, Panama. And I was hoping that we might spend some time talking about just one of those two chapters where the Panamanians are able to be also inserted much more um, prominently within your narrative, which to be honest, doesn't always happen. You know, a lot of it is about the U.S. or Americans in the Canal Zone or about the the, the large um, West Indian um, population. And in chapter um, four, you offer a close reading of this important Panamanian um, cultural artifact, one in which I, I wasn't aware of, this, this play um, called La Cucarachita Mandinga or the Mandinka Cockroach. And I was thinking that it might be interesting for our our listeners to hear you talk about how this particular play um, performed uh, constructions of Panamanian nationhood and and how it then became used to contest or to challenge um, U.S. sovereignty over the canal. Right. Thank you so much. I will quickly um, <laughs> uh, discuss this because I know we're, we're running short on time. Um, so yes, the La Cucarachita Mandinga is, um, it's a really, really popular play in Panama. It's, it's really present like 
in you know everyone knows about it everyone reads it in school a lot of people have performed it in it um in school productions it's just a really really present um play and it's also um the characters you can see them kind of springing up everywhere in in people's discussions of various things and it it is about a little cockroach who um kind of goes courting it's based on a a fable that is present throughout Latin America and the Caribbean um, in places like Venezuela and Puerto Rico and Cuba. Um, but here um, it's um, the play, which was written in 1937 by, um, uh, by uh, um, uh, Rogelio Sinan, um, who is a kind of avant-garde surrealist author, um, uh, you know, challenges us imperialism by having the suitors um, who court the little Mandinga cockroach be, um, you know, various imperial figures like a Spanish bull, a, a U.S. pig, right? A duck that's a, a Marine, a U.S. Marine. Um, and the, the cockroach herself represents Panama. Um, and the, the word Mandinga is meant to kind of signify that she is of African descent. And it's funny because I gave a talk about this in Panama a few years ago and people were really like shocked that I was um, examining the racial and gendered and sexual implications of this tale that everyone loves so much. And we're, we're really offended actually um, that I was going so deeply into it. And I got hectored um, because it is so sacrosanct to so many people and they think of it as something so lovely, but it actually has like a very anti-colonial um, thrust and it has, it does racialize the, the central character as a black woman, um, often also an Afro-Indigenous woman um, who, that, as Sinan wrote um, in his attempt to try to um, identify her. Um, so she's sort of seen as mulata or Afro-Indigena or black or, you know, various shades um, of non-white. And she is, she ends up, um, you know, marrying this rat uh, who's uh, Raton Perez. I mean, you could see it as the Republic of Panama. I'm not exactly sure, you know, who that corresponds to, but in, in the end, the rat, you know, almost drowns in a pot of soup and then they um, end up he- resurrecting him and getting married. And it's a very silly tale and full of songs and funny costumes, but you know, it, it also um, has this interesting uh, subtext. So um, the initial play in 1937, a lot of people don't know about it because it was actually rewritten. Um, it was rewritten in the, in the seventies by people associated with the Torrijos administration. And it was made into a very straightforward, like Marxist fable of kind of material, you know, materialism and the relations of production. And in the play, in the play that as it was rewritten, the Cucarachita is extremely feminist and very anti-colonial and kind of chides her neighbors for, you know, being religious and things like this and constantly talks about progress and development and references some of the um, projects of the Torrijos um, administration, um, like the Cerro Colorado um, mine and things like that. So it becomes kind of a propaganda for the administration and Torrijos, well, several Panamanian Um, administrations have also staged these huge, huge productions of it that are expensive and take place like around the country. They travel around the country or they take place in these really important spaces like the National Theater. And then Torijo stages a huge production of it um, that is meant to be linked to um, the referendum on uh, Panama's, um, on the treaties, right? On the handover treaties in the 70s. And 
Um, and then later in the <laughs> another referendum to expand the canal um, by the ACP, the Panama Canal Authority, this is post um, Panama regaining sovereignty over the canal. They also stage a production of the Cucarachita Mandinga to, this is like in 2006, right, to kind of connote and conjure Torrijos's linked referendum and staging of the play. So it's a very interesting um, kind of way in which the play becomes imbricated into these sovereign milestones. Um, and also the the play in 2006 is staged in the canal zone, the former canal zone. And it's meant to kind of, you know, show that the canal zone is now Panamanians own territory, um, which is, you know, misleading, as I point out, because it's it's not, but they do invite people into the central part of the canal zone to to watch this play that's so integral to their identities. Hmm. No, I, I invite listeners to to pick up the book. You really should. It's, it's fascinating. And she has beautiful images to kind of show you um, the ways in which um, the the actors who took part in the play, how they changed over time and questions about the race and the sexuality as sort of, a, I guess, a metaphor to, to, to Panama's own complicated history. I'm curious to hear, what are you working on currently? Mm. <laughs> well, you know, um, so it's funny because when I was researching my book, I there was an elephant in the room that I wasn't really thinking about. Um, and now I'm dealing with it head on and it's very, very, uh, thorny. <laughs> it's a thorny elephant, but, um, it is, a. Uh, um, basically I was not dealing with the military aspects of the U S in the canal zone. And, um, in my current work, I'm, I'm, I'm treating that much more centrally and really going kind of far away from theater as a kind of aesthetic performance and into simulated combat as a kind of performance and, U.S. Um, training of Latin American militaries in the canal zone, um, and also doing a project where we, t we uh, a photojournalist and I have gone through the canal zone, um, the military canal zone, to try to document the the U.S. military bases that were there. Because what what I don't talk about in my book is that the canal comprises a very small part of the actual canal zone, and much more of it is taken up by huge military installations that are now um, things like a mall, a hotel, and other, you know, other things that are quite far from military base. But that's very, it's very important to understand um, the landscape of the military bases in order to understand the, the legacies of the Cold War in Latin America. So I think I'm going deeply into that in my current work. Mm, I look forward to it. I, I teach at, um, as you know, at the United States Naval Academy, and I, I teach a course on on Panama Canal's a research methods course, hoping students might find the topic um, uniquely interesting to them. And I'm surprised every semester when I've taught it um, how little um, American young people actually know about um, the U.S. being in um, Panama. They vaguely have a sense about the canal zone. My students will know that there's installations there, but they they don't have a very uh, kind of strong grasp on it. And so the work. Um, that you're talking about would be very pivotal for helping them to to understand, um, you know, not just an American history, but kind of a particular military history in which they're walking into. So I'll be kind of watching, um, you know, for for your for your work um, coming out in the in the future. Thank you so much, Katie, for the interview. This has been great. Thank you so much, Sharika. I, I really enjoyed talking with you. Please find a link to Sovereign Acts, Performing Race, Space, and Belonging in Panama and the Canal Zone on our website. Until next time.